This morning we're continuing our study, This is My Story, This is His Story, and today there's a great convergence in a text that we're pretty familiar with. We call it the Great Commission. Most of us probably are aware of it. It's on the screen, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What I find fascinating about this is a lot of times there's a big gravitational pull towards the words that are in highlighted yellow. Lots of people over my life kind of memorize this and kind of remember it as go, make disciples of all nations everywhere in the world, baptizing, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. It even gets distilled down at times to just simply go, baptize, and teach. And the making disciples, which is the imperative verb, kind of just falls away a little bit. Like it's not quite as emphasized as much as the go, baptize, and teach. It becomes almost a bedrock policy or principle, if you will, of what we do after we're baptized and become Christians. This is what we do. We go out and we go and we baptize and we teach, which is good. But I think there's a lot more to it. So let's look at how we've done it so far. Well, persuasion. And persuasion is not necessarily a bad thing. I remember there used to even be a software package called persuasion that now is no more. PowerPoint's taking it over. But the idea was to put your information together in a well-sorted way so that you could lead people to understanding, which is a great definition of persuasion. However, in our day and time, Persuasion has kind of become a sneaky, kind of dirty word. Uh, it's, usually, it's usually encompassed with things or uh, hitched to things like high pressure, um, uh, arguing, maybe even embarrassment, so that you will do something. And then when you do it, it usually subsides right afterwards. Um, in calling people during these crazy times, I, I called on Joe and Amy Jackson again. And first time I talked to them, I got to talk to Joe. And the second time I called them, I got to talk to Amy. And Amy and I had a wonderful conversation for like 35 minutes. And in that conversation, we realized that we both bought Kirby vacuum cleaners and, at uh, previous times in our lives. And we had a little discussion about it. And, you know, I don't know how her and, and Joe feel about their Kirby, but I know Cheryl and I were kind of like, yeah, well, yes, we'll let somebody come to our house and give us a demonstration and it'll help them and we're under no obligation to purchase anything. And the next thing you know, we've got this really expensive vacuum cleaner and we're young. We've only been married like two years. And then nothing. Like, the, okay, they called and made sure it got delivered to the house because they shipped it. But other than that, we're Kirby owners and they're out after other Kirby owners. They don't care really about us anymore because we have one, right? Well... Surely we wouldn't do that about the most important thing that we can share with humanity. But according to Webster and the world, we've already been classified that way. A set of belief or, or beliefs, especially religious or political ones. So oftentimes what people say is, well, here comes some Christian that wants me to be converted or do something. And so I'm going to pretend I'm not home or I'm going to go the other way because I don't, I don't want to listen to this. Because it's a sales pitch. So what are we missing? What happened? How did we end up in this mess? Well, let's go back to our text for a second. Let's look at the passage again, because I think it's just a matter of getting going too fast. Notice that the very first word is therefore, which would indicate something has taken place before these two verses that enable them to actually happen. And 
Someone is speaking. Now, we know who the someone is, but if we're teaching other people, they may not know. Someone is speaking that says, I will be with you always. And there's ending quotation marks. But there's no opening quotation marks. So it's as if we've taken our marching orders or our bedrock policy right in the middle of somebody's thoughts and conversation. So we have to back up and see what this is about. If we back up to verse 18, we see that Jesus came to them, them being the eleven, and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Ah, okay. That's, that's going to be important. But before we get there, Jesus didn't have authority on earth previously? Well, in short, no. If we look at Philippians 2, and this is just a section of the verses that I put together, Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, looking like other men, and sharing in human nature. Which means he's just like everybody else, except that he hasn't sinned, and he happens to be the Son of God. But he's just like everybody else. At this point in his time on earth, no one really knows who he is other than John the Baptist and his family and a few, few friends. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, if you live in the first century and you're looking at the worldview of the first century, how would, you, how would you realize that someone has risen to authority? How would that happen? Well, the Israelites, which later become the Jews, the Israelite worldview would be such that Yahweh designates Israel's king. It's always been that way. There's a process, actually, that Yahweh has. Yahweh's process is like this. He designates the candidate. And when he designates the candidate, he anoints them. And we know that in the Old Testament, he anoints them with oil. And then after the candidate has been anointed, the candidate, the candidate demonstrates his fitness to be king with some sort of test or trial. And then after he successfully does the test and completes the trial, he's then coronated. All right, let's, let's think. You're... you're if you needed some examples, we have three here on the screen. There's plenty more, but these are three that we know. Saul, David, and Solomon. And for the, for the brevity of time this morning, we're going to go with David, because most of us know the story of David. If we look at 1 Samuel 16, if you're not familiar with it, I encourage you to read it this afternoon. We know that in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel's upset uh, that you know, God has fallen out of favor with King Saul. And God says to Samuel... Grab your horn full of oil, and I'm going to show you who to anoint as the next king. And he goes through all of David's older brothers, and none of them are acceptable to God. And then David comes in from the field, and God says, this is the one. And Samuel anoints him. And what is the very next thing after David is anointed with oil by Samuel, showing that he's the candidate for the next king? What is the next thing that he does? He kills Goliath. But he kills Goliath not the way the world would think. He kills Goliath without Saul's armor, without his sword, without his shield. As a matter of fact, he just has some stones and a sling and Yahweh with him. And he slays Goliath. And then we know that he goes on to be coronated as king. Uh, Les even referenced it in his opening prayer this morning. From the line of David, we, we uh, know that Jesus comes from there. He's not only coronated as king, he's promised by God an eternal dynasty that will not end. All right, well, let's look at Jesus then. Because this is what's happening in the story of the Gospels. Jesus is anointed, but he's not anointed with oil. 
from a, a horn of oil. He's anointed when he goes down to the river Jordan and John baptizes him, John the Baptist. And then the skies open and Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. And by the way, more Holy Spirit than any human being has ever had. And God speaks from heaven saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So it's obvious that he is the candidate for king. And then what happens is in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, we get the story of the same Holy Spirit that he's been anointed with, guides him into the wilderness for his trial, for his test. And he goes head to head with Satan, and he doesn't sin, and he defeats Satan, which no other human being has ever done. We've all been there and we've all failed, but Jesus didn't. So his demonstration is even exponentially more than any other king. And then the coronation, which is a little bit harder to, to, to pinpoint because it really takes place from after emerging from the wilderness for the rest of his earthly ministry, but most specifically his trial, his passion, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And if you think about it, even scripture shows that it's happening. It's not very pleasant to look at, but they put a crown of thorns on his head. They dress him up in robes of purple. They bow down to him and call him king of the Jews. And all of that comes true. So what does it mean for Jesus to be king? Well, in Les's prayer, he referenced this. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father right now, and because he did what Israel couldn't do and what originally humans were created could not do, he healed the ability for us to inherit what he did for us. He took humanity from down here and he moved it up above the angels and is now sitting in heaven with God at his right hand. And he is the perpetual king that 2 Samuel 7 talks about. He is, the per and he is reigning over the permanent kingdom that will never go away, that we are to be ev evidencing as Christians, as the church in the world. Which is how we tie all this into the Great Commission, right? We're going to actually hopefully shift that to the co mission, which is in the Word. N.T. Wright says it this way, Jesus rescues human beings in order that through them he may rule his world in a new way he always intended. Well, what is that new way? How did Jesus disciple people? That's what Matthew 28 is actually saying. There's these other things that happen. There's these other action steps. But the main thing we're supposed to be doing is discipling people. So how did Jesus disciple people? Were people drinking from a fire hose, like Les referenced two weeks ago in his sermon? Did Jesus quickly save people and then just move on to the next person? No, neither one of those. He spent three and a half years with his apostles, with his disciples, and with all the followers of him, allowing them to get to know him and to get to learn his ways. It was not a quick thing and done, and then he moves on to find the next person. The New Testament tells us that we're ambassadors of the king. We represent Jesus everywhere we go. And now we know that Jesus implements his kingdom through us because of the Great Commission. So how are we supposed to disciple? Well, pretty, pretty simply and straightforward, we image God by doing what Jesus would do, when he would do it, and with the motivation he would have for doing it. And then there's that other sentence on the screen. We are representatives of Yahweh and Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. All right, let's unpack that for a second. If we go back to the Old Testament, let's look at Exodus 20, verse 7. 
Just hang with me for a second. We all know this, right? This is one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the Lord name, your God's name in vain, for the Lord will not hold guiltless anyone who takes his name in vain. Here's what's interesting about this verse. In the original language, in the Hebrew, the word behind the English words there on the screen, take and takes, is nasah. And nasah actually does mean take, but it means take like to pick up and take with you, to bear, to uphold, to carry, to represent. So it's much, much bigger than just simply not using the, word, the Lord's name in vain or in the, in the inappropriate way. It's a lot more about actions and representation than it is about speech. And Paul comes along and says the same thing in Galatians. He says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Galatians 3.27 If we've clothed, our, clothed ourselves in Christ, then guess what? Anywhere we go, we're wearing those clothes. Later in Romans 13, verse 14b, really, part of the last part of the verse, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh or the world to arouse its desires. We're supposed to be representing the world that's coming, not this one. How do we do this? We do it the same way Jesus did it. By listening to and following the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit actually places us and places people for us in our paths. There's, there's examples all over Scripture, but again, for time, let's just look at two. We go to Acts 8, and we think about Philip. The Holy Spirit places Philip along the chariot of the Ethiopian eunuch. And the Ethiopian's riding along reading the scroll of Isaiah. And Philip, probably, in my mind, running along next to the chariot, says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, well, how could I, unless somebody explains it to me? And so he explains it to him, and then the Ethiopian understands it. They see water. The Ethiopian assumes that because he's a eunuch, there'll be some reason he can't be baptized. And Philip says, no, there's no, no hindrance. So he's baptized, and then the Spirit whips Philip away to wherever he needs to be next. And I think, predominantly in my life, we've taken that one and all of them have to go that way. Like, that's how you do it. That's, you go door knocking, you do that, you see the water, you baptize somebody, and then you move on to the next one. But look at Acts 10. Cornelius has a vision or, or a dream of an angel coming to him, radiant white, saying, hey, there's, uh, there's a guy in Joppa named Simon Peter, and you need to send for him. And while this is going on, Peter is having a dream when he goes up on the roof uh, and he's hungry while he's up there to pray. And he starts seeing this vision of the food coming down that's unclean. And God tells him to arise and eat. And he goes, no, 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 no. And, and, and God's trying to tell him, hey, everything I've created is actually good. There's nothing now that's unclean. And he's not quite getting it. And then the Spirit says to Peter in that situation and the multiple times he's seen this vision, hey, by the way, there's three guys downstairs at the door that have come to see you, go down there and, and welcome them. He goes down there and welcomes them. They go to Joppa the next day. He gets with Cornelius, and look, everything the Spirit was doing ahead of them clicks, and they get it, and they're like, oh, Cornelius and his family are the first Gentiles that are invited into the kingdom. They're not baptized immediately. They get the Holy Spirit first, then they're baptized. So, so our model doesn't work from Acts 8, and that's okay, because guess what? God is God. We are not. We are not kingdom police that get to tell people how they get saved. We are simply to represent God any, anywhere and everywhere that we go and let him do the saving. 
Job says it this way. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. A couple of slides ago, there was a, some take years. Here's a, here's a recent example. Phil Robertson has multiple books, but in his second to last book, The Theft of America's Soul, in chapter 9, he, he tells a little story that you'll have to go read it if you want all the details, but it's a fascinating story. There's a big box store that's opening in Wisconsin, and he goes up there and he does what they want him to do, right? He comes up to talk about Duck Commander and Duck Calls and the successful uh, situation he's had in business, and he does that. He does that for the first part, and then he switches, and he says things like this. He says, you know, if you want to have a life that's full of joy, and you want to have peace that's beyond all understanding, and you want to know what it really means to be human, and how you don't need to get all caught up in whether or not you're successful in business or not, you need Jesus Christ to understand that. And he switched to the whole rest of his presentation is about that, sharing the gospel. Then he goes and gets on an airplane and either goes back to Louisiana or he goes to his next speaking engagement. Well, three years later, three years later, Miss Kay says, hey, you got a letter, you need to read this one. Hands it to him, he opens it, he starts reading it, and this guy's irate. He was there that day in Wisconsin, and he's like, you know, it was a bait and switch. I really feel like you took advantage of the situation. You turned it into a sermon and preaching, and that's not what I went there to do. And if I'd known you were doing that, I wouldn't have gone. And he said, I was so mad at you, I wanted to just spit. And he said, in the next page, some life-altering thing happened in his life. I don't remember exactly what it was. Like I said, you'll have to read it. But he got to rock bottom, let's just say that. And when he got there, all of a sudden, words that Phil had said in his presentation came to his mind. Peace beyond understanding. Joy. What it would mean to know what being a human is really about. He went to his local congregation and started going to worship gatherings. In just a few, he was baptized and became a Christian and dedicated his life to Christ. He tells all this to Phil. And on the last page of the letter to Phil, he says, Look, brother, he goes, I need to apologize to you for the things I said about you and the Degrading comments I made about Duck Commander and everything else. Can you forgive me? Phil wrote back. You know what he said? He said, welcome to the kingdom, brother. He said, uh, I didn't even know you were mad. And he said, I was just where God sent me, saying what God had me to say where I was. And I thought, wow, what would it be like if we could hold it that loosely, that we could do it that way? So let's not be so serious now and says, as though we are the only ones who are able to save the world. Because only God saves the world. That is something to stay joyful about. So let's go back and read our text again. Let's put it all together. Starting in verse 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, you can go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. See, Jesus was authentic. He wasn't trying to just do something. Of course we want to add people to the kingdom. Of course we want to take people away from the kingdom of darkness and have them come into the kingdom of light. That is what we want to do. But we don't have to do it a particular way because each person is in a different place and their journey may be a different, different path than ours. Few people actually live in authentic friendship. How can we ask someone to change their entire life around Christ if we don't get to know them and they don't get to know us. If it's just a quick sales pitch. While very few people are willing to go first, this reminds me of the Bible study that Mabel 
Jordan led on Tuesday in the ladies' Bible class. She talked about Christian courage. If we're able to go first, lots of people will say, well, if they can do it, I can do it. And by going first, we mean modeling the kingdom, modeling Jesus, always having uh, ourselves clothed in him and wearing God's name. Going first is actually both holy and heroic. It puts us actually squarely at the front of God's offensive, making disciples and teaching them all that Jesus has taught us because they're getting to know us and they see how we live differently because we know Jesus. So how are we doing at going first? This one's going to be a little tough. All right? Just as these things come on the screen, think about what it looks like to walk in with Yahweh's name on us as his children and clothed in Jesus. What happens when people are hurting and they're crying for justice and we walk on the scene? What happens when monuments of praising humans, whether they're war heroes or they're past presidents, or all big argument about whether or not we should have them or not? Come on, we're not going to have monuments of human beings and new creation. Everybody's going to be equal, right? Loving our enemies, perhaps what happens is some of these categories that are on the screen actually become our enemies because of how divided we get on some of these issues. Racial healing. What happens if we don't say anything about it? Aren't we saying something by not saying anything? What about a Trump supporter? Somebody who thinks this guy is going to save the whole country. What about a Biden supporter? Somebody who thinks this guy is going to save the whole country. Guess what? They're both broken, multi-rich people who are not an example of ultimate humanity. They are not Jesus. They are not representing the kingdom, and our nation is going to be one of those that goes away as well. So we have to keep it ordered properly. What about where and when is appropriate to discuss Jesus? You ever heard this one? You're in a business meeting, and they say, you can't, you can't talk about God in here. You can't bring up something about the kingdom. This is a business thing. This is just business, and that's not. Well, that's not what the scripture tells us. We're supposed to do it everywhere we go with anybody all the time. We might even be in front of Jesus or angels. What about wearing face masks? If you wear one, you're a wuss, and if you don't wear one, you don't love people? What, what, why, why, why does it have to be so decisive there? Why do people get so angry about whether or not their rights are being taken away because they're asked to wear a face mask to make sure other people don't get sick? Here's one. Someone kneeling during the national anthem. Okay? I caught the last five minutes of Sunday night football last, night, uh, last week, and I saw... At the end of the game, they were still talking about who knelt at the beginning of the game and who didn't, all the way at the end. And you know how football is. Cheryl says football time is crazy. It's only one hour, but it ends up lasting three because it's football time. And at the end of the game, they're still arguing about who knelt and who didn't, and what does this mean, and what does it mean going forward. You know what I saw? I saw men in a circle in the middle of the field knelt down on one knee exactly the same way people are arguing about people kneeling during the national anthem in a circle praying. And when Ben Roethlisberger came up to be interviewed after the game, he'd had this season career ending injury last year, and they said, hey, how did it feel to be back, and who do you want to thank? And he said, it felt wonderful. He said, I'm, I'm back basically because of my team. I've done everything I wanted to achieve in life, but I wanted to be here for them. And he said, as far as who to thank, he goes, number one, I need to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Number two, my wife. Number three, my teammates. Nobody's talking about that. They're still talking about whether or not somebody was knelt down for, for a, a flag that's a, that's a country that's not going to be here forever. But he was honoring the king of kings. So what does it mean for us to be sent? 
How do we include all image bearers of God when they don't look like us, they don't sound like us, they don't maybe even believe the same way we do, but they believe the core things, they believe in God, but they might not agree with all of our different uh, doctrine or, or traditional stuff. How do, how do we go out to them? Well, I am convinced that we cannot argue anybody into seeing the world differently. We can only story them into new thinking. And to do that, we have to be authentic. We have to go first. We have to offer a narrative exchange to the world saying, hey, this is what you've been told life is about, but this is what real life is about. And don't you want this instead of what you're doing? So where do we stop along the journey to equip ourselves for representing the king and his kingdom well in the everyday? And the most obvious place is we can't have the great commission without great communion. So let's go to our Father and pray over the bread. Father, thank you so much for your plan and how we see how history has unfolded. We see that you had made us kings and we rejected that. And Jesus came as one of us and reinstated it. And we're not kings yet. We're still broken and we're still fallen. But Jesus is there next to you at your right side as the example of a true human being above the angels and fully allegiant to you and to your kingdom alone in everything that he did and everything that he said. May we take this bread now as his body so that we can go out to the world and do exactly the same thing. In Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, again, we come to you thanking you for the blood of Jesus. As we ingest this bread and this blood, may it be the source that we're able to go out and remember that we are yours, that we wear your name and we wear the name of Jesus, and we may be the only way that someone is pointed to Jesus. And it may come at the most awkward time. So please empower us to be ready. Empower us to recognize the new covenant and to lean into it and to live as if new creation in your kingdom is coming tomorrow. We ask all this in Jesus' name. I, uh, I pray that today's lesson was encouraging. May we represent Christ to the world in all situations at all times. Sometimes we baptize. Sometimes we walk along in silence with people on the journey. And sometimes we challenge. And always we represent the Father and the Son by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. I pray that this week you'll go out and by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit, that they will be with you and that they will be glorified through you to everyone that they send you. So that we can all hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. You represented me and my Father and our kingdom to everyone that we sent you to.